you can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. At Popular Science, we report and write dozens of science and tech stories every week. And while most of the stuff we stumble across makes it into our articles, we also find plenty of weird facts that we just keep around the office. So we figured, why not share those with you? Welcome to The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week from the editors of Popular Science. I'm Rachel Feltman. I'm Sarah Chodosh. And I'm Lauren Leffer. Lauren, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's great to be here. Uh, Listeners, Lauren is a uh, former recent PopSci intern. And Lauren, do you want to just say a little bit about yourself before we get into the show? Uh, sure. Yeah. I So in addition to being a former recent PopSci intern, uh, I am also an almost intern at Autobahn News. So that's exciting. And uh, I'm a graduate student at NYU's School of Journalism, uh, aspiring career science journalist. Amazing. So on the weirdest thing I learned this week, we start by each offering up a little tease about some kind of fact or story that we found in the course of reading, writing, reporting, etc., And then we decide which one we just absolutely have to hear more about first. Then, once we've all had time to spin our little science yarns, we reconvene and decide what the weirdest thing we learned this week actually was. Sarah, why don't you start with your tease? I'm going to talk about banana babies, not (laughs) the frozen delicacy where you freeze a banana and cover it in chocolate, which is apparently a thing called banana babies that I found a lot trying to Google this topic, (laughs) but a different kind of banana baby. All right. Okay. Um, Lauren, what about you? Uh, I'm going to talk about how superheated falcon poop is like two degrees of scientific separation away from the origins and evolution of our planet. Oh. (laughs) Oh, my. Blown away by the falcon poop. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Always excited to hear more about falcon poop in any context, really. Um, So my tease is that uh, bees can make a special kind of honey using bug poop and pee instead of flower nectar. And spotted lanternfly excretions make an especially tasty goop. Wow. Finally, something positive to come out of the lanternfly invasion. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Sarah, it's been a while since I had you on. Why don't you pick our first uh, fact? Pick pick it or go? Oh, pick it. Okay, great, because I was going to pick yours. I know that was a wild card. I don't usually do that. (laughs) No, I was going to vote for yours. Okay, excellent. Great. Okay. I literally just found a lanternfly. Like, I thought they were all gone, and then one attacked my window yesterday, so I'm very interested. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, no. So we're going to talk more about lanternflies in the course of this fact. I am going to use it as a... As um, uh, an excuse to give people a little PSA, because I did actually 
uh, you know, listeners, I'll get more into this, but spotted la- spotted lanternfly is very invasive. You're supposed to kill them on site. And I have literally seen more than one acquaintance of mine on social media post a picture being like, what is this beautiful bug I'm seeing everywhere? Delightful. And then like three comments down, they're like, I have been informed that this is not delightful. I'm so sorry. They but are so pretty though. Very pretty. Yeah, I hate killing them, but I do kill them with a vengeance. Yeah. I had that conversation with my mom this past weekend i like showed her a picture and she was like oh i see those everywhere they're beautiful (laughs) no god damn it they're tricking us yeah we really uh they've got much better pr than the usda has right now i would say um we need we need to uh set up we need like a smear campaign or something i mean like literally um okay so bees what are they we don't need to get into that (laughs) but they they make honey by consuming a very sugary liquid, uh, some of which goes into an extra stomach called a crop, where it mixes with enzymes that help preserve it. Um, and then back at the hive, a bee will puke this nectar into a fellow bee's mouth. This part I did not know. There's like a, they they puke from mouth to mouth to pass it on. And in this fashion, they go on until it gets dropped into a honeycomb. Um, and then they fan it with their wings to evaporate as much water as possible. So that gets it to that really gooey texture that we know and love. And then they secrete another liquid from their abdomen. So there's a lot of secretions involved, um, in the process of making honey. And that hardens into wax, which seals off the cell that the honey is in. And then it can sit indefinitely to feed future bees. I've seen it written that it takes tens of thousands of pukes to make a, a plastic bear's worth of honey. So that is beautiful. Um, something for everyone to keep in mind. I love honey, but I did recently realize it is like one of very few things that I like actually can't eat. It's very um, bad for my stomach. Fructose is really hard for me. So um, there is something kind of cathartic for me about being like so much puke is involved in the process of honey creation no shade to anyone who's still able to enjoy it but (laughs) i I was gonna say that we should like in addition to like weirdest thing merch we should have weirdest thing honey that's just like like ten thousand puke honey or something like that (laughs) oh my gosh i would love that if i ever um take to keeping bees and sell my honey self-proprietary pop side honey honey. (laughs) i'd love that um So while the sweet stuff that turns into honey often comes from flowers, that is the the quintessential process, bees can munch on other forms of sugar in a pinch, uh, including probably the waste secretions of the invasive spotted lanternfly. So according to this awesome Atlas Obscura article by Alexandra Jones from March 2021, which I'll link to on popsidecom slash weird, Philadelphia beekeepers recently encountered a very strange honey harvest. In 2019, they noticed their hives smelled like candied bacon, um, and the resulting honey was like unusually thick, and it was very dark. It was like a reddish brown, and there are certain um, sugar sources that can make for darker honey, uh, but this was like quite dark. So they figured something must be going on, and a Penn State University uh, apiculturist named Robin Underwood set out to analyze samples of this unusual honey. Uh, And she thinks the spotted lanternfly could be to blame, or, uh, you know, maybe blame is not the right word because it sounds like this honey is pretty delicious. But so the spotted lanternfly 
which is this, as we've discussed, heartbreakingly beautiful and absolutely ecologically devastating little leafhopper, which is native to China, was first seen in Pennsylvania in September of 2014. It's since spread throughout the Northeast and Mid-Atlantic, and these bugs, they feed on dozens of species of plants, including a lot of food crops, and they cause a lot of damage in the process. In addition to all the nibbling, they also secrete this sticky waste, which is basically like poop or pee, but, you know, bugs are, um, it's not a, not a one-to-one comparison to humans, but this is the waste product that is left over when they digest their food. Uh, and it's called honeydew, and it tends to attract molds that kill the affected plants. So Sorry, they call it honeydew? They call it honeydew. Like the melon? Yeah, yeah, like dew that tastes, well, because here's the thing. It, I also was like, that's already a thing. Um, but it, I think this name for it uh, is, is quite old. And it is like, um, it looks like dew on the plants. In fact, I think a lot of times stuff that I thought was like sap on trees is actually um, bug shit, apparently. <laughs> Whoa. All right. So it's like this glistening, you know, sticky layer on the outside of a plant um and it's very sweet uh if you if you care to eat it i guess um <laughs> if you care to lick the plant so honey honeydew um do that's kind of beautiful actually it is but unfortunately it also attracts mold that kills the affected plants <laughs> so if you're well. wondering why we have to hate lanternflies so much it's because they don't just eat things into oblivion but the stuff that they don't finish eating they then like help cultivate deadly mold on it so um real bummer everything beautiful is bad (laughs) honey do do indeed lauren thank you (laughs) um it so it seems likely that philadelphia honeybees at least in the months leading up to that 2019 harvest were munching on spotted lanternfly honeydew penn state's underwood found traces of a bitter chemical called Alenthone, though I'm realizing I did not look up the pronunciation for that, but it is a bitter chemical, uh, and it was in this distinctive honey sample. So it's produced by a tree that spotted lanternflies are known to favor. Um, it's called the tree of heaven, which, as it so happens, is also an invasive species. <laughs> um, Great. Yeah. So we already know that honey made by bees who feed on the nectar of the flowers of this tree Um, it's like pretty typical in terms of color and viscosity. It has notes of grape and passion fruit. The honeydew honey was more like a dried fruit or a fig with like caramel notes and the scent of dried leaves. I haven't tasted it, but the general consensus is that it's got like a lot of depth. There's a lot going on and it's very different. Like if you, if you had like your average store-bought honey next to this honey, you would be like, is this even honey? (laughs) Um, and this isn't too surprising because honey made from honeydew, uh, of aphids. So like aphids are known to produce a lot of, um, you know, sticky crap on trees and bees are known to sometimes eat it and make honey with it. And that's already quite popular. And it's known for being very thick and earthy and woody. I didn't know there were like honey sommeliers. I didn't know there were people like (laughs) whose job it was to come up with descriptions of honey that involved like leaves. Yeah, no, there are. I mean, look, I think like pretty much any food that like turns out differently based on 
the botanicals involved or like the process of preparing those ingredients, like there's going to be some some school of experts somewhere <laughs> or at least some some hipsters uh, at shops in Philadelphia saying it tastes like uh, forest floor. Um, and yeah, it seems like th- there's a pretty strong consensus that at least um, so something I learned in the course of researching this is that like there there are actually at least two distinct kinds of honey. And one of them is honeydew, which is confusing because it's honey made from honeydew and it's referred to as honeydew. I feel like we should have two different names for those two different things. But anyway, it's apparently already well known that when bees use this bug excrement as their sugar source, the resulting honey is like fundamentally different. Even on the chemical level, there's been some research on this really fundamentally different from um, honey made from flowers, which makes sense because it's still um, sugar from plants, but it's had this extra step in between in a bug's digestive system. Um, so it's like, you know, twice digested. Yeah. Like twice baked potatoes. Exactly. Know? Yeah. Refried beans. <laughs> Just cook it twice. It's better that way. Yeah. Um, so yeah, bees are known to snack on honeydew when it's like a more plentiful food source than flower nectar. So we don't know how often they'll go for spotted lanternfly pea and create this intoxicating brew. It could be something that becomes more and more common as these bugs spread, um, or it could still just be something that kind of like randomly happens to some hives somewhere sometimes. Um... Of course, bees can get sugar from all sorts of sources, and these all affect their honey's properties. Just to go through a few fun examples. Um, in 2012, some French bees got into an M&M factory's waste vats, and they produced a blue and green honey. And the articles um, coming out of France at that time are uh, pretty hilarious. I am sorry for anyone who lost their, their honey crop that year, but um, a lot of indignant quotes from... French uh, beekeepers being like, well, it tastes like honey, but I would never call it honey because how dare it's from M&M's. Wow. Um, <laughs> so stuck up. I would love blue honey. Right. Well, it's I feel in the M&M region of France. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, otherwise it's just sparkling honey. Um, <laughs> but yeah, there there was a a lot of people apparently could just not sell their their honey that year, and then the M M&M and M factory had to start like covering their their waste to keep bees from getting into it. But like it makes sense because bees will just go for the easiest food source, and a literal like bucket full of sugar water is very easy. <laughs> okay, so here's another fun one: bees that feed on rhododendron nectar produce honey containing a neurotoxin that induces lightheadedness or even hallucinations in small doses and can actually cause seizures or death in excess. Um, It's largely known as mad honey and is most common in Turkey. And it's said that when Roman soldiers invaded the Black Sea in 67 BC, their enemies scattered mad honeycomb along their path um, and then attacked them while they were intoxicated. Whoa. (laughs) What? Yeah. (laughs) That's wild because like rhododendrons are such a common like plant just like have in suburban areas. I feel like I get I mean, I guess there's not enough rhododendrons that it's like just rhododendron honey, but that's wild. 
Yeah, well, and it's interesting, too, because like a lot of plants that we think of as being dangerous, um, it's not actually their flowers that have like the dangerous chemical properties. So, for example, you can eat poison oak honey and it's totally safe um, because, you know, it's it's like the the oils on the leaves that make poison oak give us a nasty skin reaction. Um, So and there are a few other examples of things like that. So like there are some plants that if bees really go hog wild on a single nectar source and that nectar has dangerous properties. Um, I'm also not sure if it's every like species of rhododendron flower that this, uh, applies to. I mean, mad honey does primarily come from Turkey. So presumably it's, um, more of a a thing for certain varietals than others. Um, but yeah, like for the most part, if you're keeping bees, you don't have to worry too much like that they're bringing back poisonous honey. Um, I don't think it's something that comes up very often, but, um, yeah, if if anyone ever um, offers you hallucinogenic honey, you should b- believe them. You should assume that that honey is going to mess you up. Um, Are people like making this intentionally in Turkey? Or- oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure. Um, in fact, in researching it, uh, I found at least one like Etsy seller <laughs> claiming to sell it. <laughs> I would not recommend that. Um as, Etsy's as, gone next level when yeah. you could get hallucinogenic honey. <laughs> I mean, I am all for um, consenting adults enjoying, um, you know, consciousness expanding activities uh, in moderation and safely. Um, I don't think that buying um, hallucinogenic honey on Etsy is the way to do that. <laughs> so I, that's don't, my take. There's other better ways to hallucinate people. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Um like make your own mad honey, I guess. I don't know. I, like I, I don't. I, the dosing like, that feels seems, like a lot of work. Yeah, it seems like a lot of work. A lot of a lot of upfront investment, and also I I really cannot speak to the safe dosing thereof. So um, do your research, please. Uh, yeah, and then there's like more straightforward stuff, like all sorts of plants that um, if if bees are are around, they'll affect the flavor of the honey. Um, eucalyptus produces a, a hint of like menthol taste in the honey, which um, I have never gotten to try, but sounds like it might be, um, you know, refreshing if you're sick. Coffee honey tends to be very dark and rich. Um, alfalfa apparently creates a bit of spice uh, and most fruit blossoms produce honey that's kind of fruity, though apparently a lot of orange blossom honey is just artificially flavored. So you know, read the back of that label. So circling back to the spotted lanternfly, um, I'm not going to stumble through a description of this bug on the air because I'm not an entomologist. Uh, They're spotted. They're very pretty. But you should give them a Google and keep an eye out um, because unfortunately, again, these are bugs you want to kill on site for the sake of all plant life in your area. Also, they are very good at jumping. So like you really got to got to get them the second you see them. Um, if you take a second to admire them, that's how they get you. <laughs> Do not hesitate. Yeah. Um, anyway, on a lighter note, the spotted lanternfly honey is called Doom Bloom, which is great. Um, and at least at the time of this recording, you can buy it on the Philadelphia Bee Company website. Um, I'll link to that on the article for this episode, which you can find at popsi.com slash weird. Wow. I need to get a sample of this because I have a friend who collects weird honey. Just Ooh. like 
which I, I'm going to be honest, until this episode, I didn't fully have an appreciation for how different it could be. The only honey I've ever tried that was like, oh, this is a totally different thing is like Manuka honey. Mm-hmm. But who has who has the funds to buy Manuka honey? <laughs> yeah, I was thinking about your um, your beef axe episode um, from last yeah. season in this. And I was like, I don't think we got too much into flavor. We just talked about Manuka honey. Um, but yeah, what's, I, a, what's a Manuka Oh, uh, great man- question. <laughs> uh, a manuka, manuka is a tree. It's a tree that's native to New Zealand. So it's super expensive because you, you, it's like one of the only honeys where you have to l- test it legally. It has to have like a certain, there's some chemical it that has gets to be the from honey. the manuka region of France. <laughs> <laughs> that's a joke, just to be clear for folks. <laughs> it's not from the manuka region of France. There is no manuka region of France. Um, yeah, they have to like test it. Um, so it's like it's fancy honey and it's really really dark and very thick and very very expensive and i think most of the stuff that you buy in the u.s is like crappy (laughs) but if you fly all the way to new zealand (laughs) you can still buy it for a lot of money yeah also a big upfront cost in that sort of (laughs) investment yes many hours on a plane (laughs) um i feel like i feel like doom bloom is just an extension of like the the spotted lanternfly PR team's genius, though. It's true. Like, it does make it them sound me really like cool yeah. and delicious. Um, yeah, well, and, like, definitely in researching kind of weird honey flavors, like, the the big takeaway is that, like, the most expensive honeys are the ones that are, um, I don't know, there are a couple where, for whatever reason, the, the nectar source is either rare or requires a lot of, like, weird logistics, like, chestnut honey is very um coveted because because of chestnut blight in the u.s there are very few chestnut trees so just like you you are unlikely to come across a um a beekeeper who has access to you know enough chestnut trees for there to be chestnut honey um and similarly there's like um honey um from heather uh is apparently i i did not write this down so i'm going to be very vague about it so as not to misrepresent it but in like the highlands where where the heather is um the blooming of the heather doesn't coincide with like peak bee season like the bees are already pretty dormant by the time the heather is blooming so the beekeepers have to kind of i don't know if they perk up the bees or they like get some heather to wave around in front of them i don't know give, a, give but them they, a little adderall get them up and out right exactly but whatever they have to do which i have not researched so i cannot speak to they they have to like make it all happen because the bees aren't just gonna like wake up one day and be like oh yes it's time to go eat these flowers um so this yeah was my this was my next question was like to what degree do people like can it, i don't know like all these weird honeys i'm just very curious how many people like is it just like oh i happen to live near a grove of this thing so if i kept bees i could make this very valuable honey like are people going to start cultivating spotted lanternflies to make this very weird honey? I don't oh, know. Oh gosh, I hope no. I hope not. Please don't do that. I don't think it's that good. I mean, there are lots of good honeys in the world. We don't need this particular one. Um, yeah, no. I mean, I think it's uh, a lot of it, it, it. The reason these like special, unique honeys tend to cost a lot is that like 
you have to either put in a lot of work or like be in very lucky circumstances for them to um, come to be. So, yeah. Well, and that's why I think so much honey is just branded as like wildflower honey because it's like, you know, we have bees and they go out. And so sometimes the flavors are more interesting than others. Um, but, you know, those people aren't promising. Like this is definitely blueberry honey or, you know, Does whatever. bees harvesting yeah. the spotted lanternfly honeydew make it any less harmful to trees somehow? Oh, that's a good it, question. Like, I, I think the <laughs> bees are, their mouths are very tiny. So I'm going to, I'm going to go out on a limb and say probably not because I don't think they, um, they're eating enough of it. But I don't know. Maybe. That would be a nice silver lining here, um, in addition to the delicious honey. Anyway, that's those are all my honey facts for today. <laughs> all right, we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back with more facts. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app Answer a few questions and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Okay, we're back. And uh, Sarah, what banana babies? <laughs> if not the what? ones in my freezer, which what banana, banana babies? What banana babies? Okay, so uh, we're going to go back a little bit to the beginning of the 20th centuries when um, bananas were a really exotic fruit. I feel like this is a thing we've talked about on the podcast before. Yeah, we talked about their introduction at the World Fair where people like paid the equivalent of like $20 a banana and ate them out of foil with a fork, even though they literally come ready to be eaten with your hands. <laughs> they come in a handy package, but yeah, you got to make them fancy if you're going to pay $20. Um, so yeah. So, you know, and the, in the early 1900s, bananas were an exotic fruit. They were like, after the introduction at the world fair, they like became more and more common and became more widely available. And because of the combination of being a little bit exotic, but also like people could buy them, bananas kind of became this like superfood mm. because like in like much acai. the way, exactly like acai berries now or like goji berries or like whatever, insert whatever f- like fruit slash grain that Just like America. Just expensive enough that you feel um, superior for. Exactly. You got to go to Whole Foods to get it. Maybe something like that. So bananas were like that. If Whole Foods existed, then bananas would be the thing that they're like, look at this super fruit. There was actually an article in the Journal of the American Medical Associ- Association that noted that bananas were, quote, 
sealed by nature in practically germ-free and germ-proof <laughs> packages. Also, just crucially for it to have super food status, it has to be something that lots of people all over the world have been eating since the beginning of time. And yes. that white people had just <laughs> just come across yes. at a world yes. fair. It, it has to be a thing that like wealthy white people are like, hey, other people eat this food and they are clearly living better lives than we are. And so we must go and take it. Uh, and predictably, like, I mean, bananas now, you could just buy bananas. They're like 40 cents at Trader Joe's or something like that. And so someday acai, I'm sure, will be like that. Um, but yeah, there was this like, there was a, an astoundingly widespread sense that bananas were somehow like curative in no really particular way just like they must be good they must be healthy and good and they come in germ-proof packages uh so yeah and this idea was so widespread like even among experts that some doctors took to trying to cure their patients various ailments with bananas and one of those was Sidney Haas who was a pediatrician who was working in New York City at the time and he focused especially on researching celiac disease which was like, so now we know celiac disease is an autoimmune disorder. I have celiac disease, so I'm just going to put that there, out there up front. I'm particularly interested in this because I have it and I also eat a lot of bananas. Um, so now we know it's an autoimmune disorder and basically like your body's immune system has decided that the gluten protein is a threat. But in the 1920s, nobody knew that. They just knew it was some kind of nutritional disorder mm. and that it was pretty deadly. So 30% of kids who had celiac died of their celiac disease back then. Yikes. And that's because they basically wasted away. Like, if you have celiac and you eat gluten, which, like, bread being incredibly common, lots of kids ate lots of gluten, and it just destroys the lining of your intestines and you can't absorb nutrients and then you just you you waste away like you basically die of malnutrition um but Haas had recently gone to a town in Puerto Rico with I guess a bunch of people with celiac disease it's like unclear to me why he was just like randomly visiting this town in Puerto Rico um but he noted that there were people with celiac who ate a lot of bread who had tons of health issues but the banana farmers who mostly ate bananas did not and concluded that obviously bananas must cure celiac disease. <laughs> ah, yes, that <laughs> clearly. <laughs> I love, I love, I love. Um, I mean, we still have this problem today, but I feel like, especially in the earlier history of science, people just really ignoring all confounding variables. Yeah, it's astounding to me how much of statistical like probability and like correlation doesn't equal causation happens. Like the idea that you'd go to some random town in Puerto Rico and be like, ah, the people who eat mostly bananas do not suffer from this disease and therefore it must cure celiac disease. But uh, that was his conclusion. And so he came <laughs> back to the US and he started giving his patients who were like, to be fair, very sick, like on yeah. their deathbeds and like had, there were no options. Like these these kids were just considered to like, probably they were going to die. And if they didn't die, they were going to live like, very sad malnourished lives and so to be fair to him like everyone was looking for sure. any kind of solution yeah it wasn't bananas in the end but like <laughs> the thing the thing was he what? came back <laughs> he came back he started giving his patients a very strict diet of bananas and milk and broth and a little bit of meat but i think mostly bananas like an astounding number of bananas at the Got time it. Um, and the results were really miraculous. Like all these kids who previously were wasting away, they like they went into remission and they started gaining weight and they like 
grew at a normal rate to the other children and they were saved like it was there's the famous story about when insulin was invented that like all these kids in the diabetic ward who were in what we now know are like diabetic comas were given insulin and they all miraculously woke up like it was like that but a slow version of it essentially where like over a couple weeks they suddenly just got better and they were just like healthy kids again and then, of course, that was just fuel. The bananas were some kind of miracle food because, like, look, they cured these children. They, <laughs> they were like... gave them gluten-free carbs. <laughs> they were so hungry. Exactly. But yes, sure, bananas. <laughs> yeah. Uh, another physician tried to cure diabetes with bananas. Uh, it apparently did help people lose weight, but I have to imagine that this poor doctor maybe just gave, just told them you could eat only bananas and, like, anyone would lose weight on that diet. Uh, and I don't know that it actually did anything for the diabetes, but, um, anyway, Haas went all in on the banana diet. He was like, I have cured celiac disease. Like, this is it. Celiac disease is not a problem anymore. And a lot of other doctors also thought he had cured celiac. Uh, but as Rachel just pointed out, what he had actually done was just remove gluten unintentionally (laughs) from these children's diets. And that is why they got better. They could have eaten like literally any other fruit or just literally anything except for wheat, barley, or rye, and they would have gotten better. But um, unfortunately, that also meant that a lot of Haas's banana babies, which I don't know who coined the term banana babies, (laughs) but uh, apparently like the banana babies themselves liked that phrase. Um, But it meant that once they got older, they, a lot of them reintroduced wheat Mm, into their diet because they're... (laughs) their doctor told them that he had cured their celiac disease and that they could just start eating wheat again. And so they did. And those people just spent their whole lives thinking that periodically they just had horrendous gastrointestinal issues and that there was just no reason. And like literally in those people's medical records, it got noted that they didn't have celiac disease anymore. And so nobody ever said like, hey, perhaps bananas (laughs) did not cure you. Um, so like if you were diagnosed with celiac prior to the 1950s, you went back to eating gluten and then you just found out later that like actually none of that was true and you've just been poisoning yourself your whole life. Oh, dang. Yeah. Um, not, I mean, in the end, a happy ending for the banana babies because most of those people lived to like see the gluten-free diet. But anyway, the doctor who actually discovered the real culprit was gluten was, uh, Willem Dicka. Dicky, I don't know. It's Dutch, and despite living there, I never learned how to pronounce it properly. Um, but he was a Dutch pediatrician who was living in the Netherlands uh, during World War II, and his patients also died at really high rates. Unclear. I, I tried to look up whether he tried the banana diet. Couldn't figure that out, but um, his patients were doing really terribly, so I guess maybe not on the banana diet, uh, and were just unresponsive to medical interventions right up until the height of World War II. So the Netherlands, having been like invaded and taken over very early by the Nazis, were like they were mostly safe in terms of bombings, but what hit them really hard was famine, essentially. Like famously, the Dutch resorted to eating tulip bulbs to stay alive because they didn't have enough calories. Um, and a very strange side effect of the lack of food was that all of these kids with celiac disease suddenly got better. Oh wow. Because yeah. there was no bread. Uh, which was otherwise a pretty large component of the diet. So while the rest of the country was starving to death, all of this pediatrician's patients just like got better, all of them, suddenly. Like the mortality rate went from roughly 30% to zero. 
And it prompted him to realize that maybe it was not bananas that could cure celiac disease, but perhaps it was the bread that they were eating. Um, So he is now credited as it's not a cure, like it's a treatment. You just stop eating the thing that puts you into pain. And um, he went on to promote the gluten-free diet as the like currently still only treatment for celiac disease. Uh, Haas did not like that his banana-based glory was being taken away sure, from him i can imagine he did he, he did not love looking like a little bit of an idiot in the process and as far as i can tell until he died he insisted that bananas were definitely the cure for celiac disease and insisted that the gluten-free diet was all crap so not a great man in the end oh. even though i guess he did try yeah and those those are the banana babies wow significantly less fun than bananas covered in chocolate which i do <laughs> yes. like yes <laughs> when, you, when you mentioned you were going to do this topic, Sarah, I did also Google it. And I, I like, was like, oh, there must be something really interesting about the person who first decided to cover bananas <laughs> and chocolate. And it's much more tragic than that. <laughs> yeah, I wish I were here to just talk about bananas covered in chocolate, although they are gluten free. So. Oh, nice. Bringing it all back around. I know. <laughs> okay, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back with one more fact. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Okay, we're back. And uh, Lauren, tell us about some uh, falcon poop, please. Cool. Yeah. So um, in 2016, this new mineral called tenunculite was described and accepted into the International Mineral Association's list of official minerals. Um, which alone isn't like a super big deal. New minerals are discovered all the time. But tenunculite doesn't form like deep in the earth under intense pressure over millions of years or whatever. It forms when a European kestrel, which is a type of falcon, poops near a burning coal fire, usually like a mine or a dump. <laughs> um, so the, the bird poop gets heated by the fire and the gas from the burning coal reacts with the uric acid in the falcon feces to create this new compound that like officially fits the definition of a mineral, which, according to mineralogist Daniel Hummer, is a naturally occurring crystalline substance with a definite structure and makeup. Um, and that, that like naturally occurring bit is, um, is important. So tenunculate was like first discovered on this mountain whose name I certainly can't pronounce, uh, Mount Razvamchur, I don't know, in Russia by some Russian scientists, and it had been submitted for official classification like a bunch of times, but it wasn't accepted until 2016 because the scientists had to prove that this process of falcon poop becoming crystallized mineral could happen without human intervention, so they had to find a place on Earth um, where coal deposits had burned hot enough and nearby enough to bird poo to make tenunculite without human involvement. Um, It couldn't be, like, near a man-made mine or a coal dump or a human-started fire. Um, And to be honest, I am not totally sure how that part happened. But according to Daniel Hummer, it did. The Russians, like, proved that this process had or could theoretically happen naturally. And so the mineral got into the books. Um, But that is not 
the most exciting or interesting part. Um, it doesn't end there. <laughs> uh, because tenunculite is kind of this wild example of like a much bigger paradigm shifting idea in geology and mineral study, which is that um, life on Earth has had like a huge impact on the minerals on Earth and vice versa. The reason I found out about the falcon poop and the coal fires is because I was talking to Daniel Hummer about his work related to mineral evolution, which is this concept first proposed in 2008 by this other mineralogist, Bob Hazen, who had been Hummer's PhD advisor. That part's probably not that important. But um, when you think of evolution, maybe you think of like natural selection or Galapagos finches or like Darwin or DNA. Um, But it's not just living things that evolve. Um, At its core, evolution just means increasing complexity, going from one thing to a few different things. Uh, So Bob Hazen had this idea that this huge amount of mineral diversity on Earth evolved or went from a small number of things to a big number of things, in part because of the interplay between life and geology. Um, And to get more specific and give an example, lots of minerals are like the product of chemical reactions. Minerals form because chemicals mix together under heat and pressure and like new things come out of them. So chemical reactions need components, right? And before there was life on Earth, Earth's atmosphere had no oxygen in it, like, at all. Um, And oxygen molecules are key to this whole category of chemical reactions called redox or oxidation reduction reactions. And the first life forms on Earth were these little photosynthetic bacteria that, like, used air and light and water to create energy. So they photosynthesized and started adding oxygen to the oceans and air. Um, And eventually you end up with, like, a fully oxygenated atmosphere with air circulating around, unlocking a whole bunch of new possible chemical reactions to create more minerals. Um, This is called like the great oxygenation event. um, And it mediates, according to the hypothesis of mineral evolution, this huge explosion of mineral diversity, um, all thanks to Earth's first life, these like really unimpressive looking cyanobacteria. So, Uh, This is the biggest single event that mineral evolution points to, but the basis of this theory is that there are lots and lots of ways, big and small, that living things and rocks are altering each other's environments and determining each other's evolution or co-evolving. Again, circling back to tenunculite, this crystal structure that like could not exist without birds pooping near a fire. And the flip side of this is that, like, lots of life forms need minerals to survive and evolve, too. So if you think about, like, the iron in your own blood, that had to come from somewhere. um, And it means that early life probably evolved in an iron-rich mineral environment. Um, So as part of their research on mineral evolution, Hazen, Hummer, and a bunch of other scientists put together the Carbon Mineral Challenge. Um, It was a project running from 2015 through spring of 2019 that amateur mineral collectors and professionals alike could participate in. Uh, The researchers predicted a bunch of new carbon minerals and places they might be found based on their assumptions about this co-evolution of life and rocks, and then basically like dared everyone to go out and find them. (laughs) That's so cool. Yeah. Uh, And so they were kind of looking for like these missing links. They had predicted like this whole map of like where you would find carbon stuff because of geological events in history. And um, and the focus was on carbon because similar to oxygen, it's central to like life on Earth. It shows up in a lot of different organisms and mineral structures. And the project ended up identifying 31 new minerals, which included tenunculite, um, which is how they how they found and recorded eventually this like falcon poop mineral 
Uh, but there's certainly like a lot more left to do. And it's a whole new field of research that's pretty young. So there's a lot of interesting research happening there. Um, Hazen, the guy who invented this idea or came up with this hypothesis, says that like previously no one in the field of geology really put much time into the context of how minerals were forming or how they were changing the environment around them. But his hope is that by like embracing this idea, more people will get involved in mineral study and will learn a lot more about the Earth's history, the origins of life, and what the future might look like. Because according to him, like human life on Earth, and this seems really obvious at this point, is like heavily impacting uh, everything around us. We're changing the atmosphere completely. We're changing like water chemistry. And so we're impacting the mineral record. Um, And the goal, I think, at this point in the mineral evolution field is to kind of figure out what that means for the future of both like the physical geology of Earth, as well as like all of the living things that inhabit it. Uh, in Hazen's own words, quote, we need to understand minerals to give us the story of our planet. So, yeah. That's beautiful. Thank you. I didn't say it. He did. He was uh, <laughs> an incredibly you know, convincing person to talk to. But you, <laughs> you got know. the quote. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, that's so cool. Also, like, I love... Um, I don't know. Yeah, You really do think of minerals as being things that, like form in in the earth and we think of I think of rocks as being like so far removed from living things that you kind of forget that like fundamentally it is just organic stuff smushed for a long time and maybe some some minerals are organic stuff smushed for not a long time yeah just hanging out by some hot coals <laughs> yeah it's just like the byproduct of stuff happening around whatever forms um i don't know in talking to these mineralogists they um hummer in particular got like very passionate in describing like how the people first trying to decipher the origins of life went wrong in all their experiments because they were like heating up water in like a high oxygen environment and they like introduced some amino acids and he was like but there were no minerals how is life supposed to form without any minerals at all and i know scientists are always like very passionate about their specific thing that they do but i think he had a point I think, like, obviously we're surrounded by minerals all the time, and there's constant feedback. Totally. That is beautiful. Also, minerals are, like, a much broader category than I thought. Like, the definition you gave, I was like, well, I feel like almost anything could be a mineral. That's such a huge bucket. That's why when you play 20 questions, it's animal, vegetable, or mineral. (laughs) (laughs) Almost everything that's not an animal or vegetable. (laughs) Yeah, I learned a lot about minerals in looking this. And, and like... It's similar, again, to a lot of fields of science where, like, people argue about it amongst themselves all the time. Um, Like, amber, I think, is not considered a mineral, and it's, like, a whole – it's a whole thing. It was for a a while (laughs) – it was for a while – I should actually probably fact-check that, but um, – I think think you're right. I mean, you should, but I think you're right. Yeah, there there is, like, a long time where anything associated with living things, like, for its – mineral formation couldn't be considered a mineral but then that has like slowly started to shift and now it's like really starting to shift um another wild thing is that they're using this idea of mineral evolution to like study space minerals too which i was super confused about because in theory a lot of the space minerals we're studying are like forming in the absence of life but apparently you can just kind of apply the same concept to like 
anything that might be impacting mineral formation. I don't, it got very esoteric and weird. <laughs> uh, Bob Hazen showed me like a bunch of these graphs. He's trying to figure out how to like organize the mineral family tree, kind of like how we have evolutionary trees for living things and animals. Uh, and so far he has like these like central events in like a sunburst thing that links to other sunbursts. It, it looks kind of like a neural network. Um, so that's where we're at right now. Very cool. So what's the weirdest thing we learned this week? Y'all. Mine is none of our actual teas is mine is the honeydew. <laughs> that's, that's definitely the weirdest thing I learned. Yeah. I think, I think I would agree with that. It also made me want honey. So. <laughs> great excellent i'm glad i have made everyone crave um a thing i can uh no longer eat uh without having excruciating stomach pain i guess excruciating stomach pain was kind of a meta narrative of i was just gonna say somehow we both ended up talking about <laughs> things that we can't eat <laughs> gut issues you also side meta narrative you also shouldn't eat tenunculate for what it's worth <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Great. <laughs> the Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week is a popular science podcast. We're available on all major podcast platforms, so subscribe wherever you're listening now. And if you like what you hear, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps other weirdos find the show. For more information on the stories you heard in this episode, come find us at popsci.com slash weird. You can buy our merch, including Weirdest Thing t-shirts, tote bags, and mugs at popsci.threadless.com. The show is produced by all of our hosts, including me, Rachel Feltman, with editing and audio engineering by Jess Bodie. Our theme music is by Billy Cadden. If you have questions, suggestions, or weird stories to share, tweet us at weirdest underscore thing. Thanks for listening, weirdos. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Grand Canyon University makes earning your degree possible with over 130 academic programs for traditional campus students with more than 80 bachelor's programs offered online. GCU provides you with the personal support you need from complimentary unofficial transcript evaluations within 24 business hours to scholarships, academic support, and your GCU graduation team led by your own university counselor. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.